There are many ways that you can learn about a man. You could, uh, you could look at his phone. You can learn about a man that way. You could look at his wallet or his credit card statement. And you can learn about a man that way. Another way you can learn what a man is and what a man's about is to go through his desk. And so I thought I would do that this morning. I grabbed some stuff out of my desk. You kind of get a feel for a little bit of who I am. And of course, you know, there's always the office stuff. There's staples and pens and, and all those other things. But there's some other things about me that I thought I would bring and show you. Um, one of the things in my desk is this little toy. This is a little toy from Ethiopia. And when I'm really bored, I just sit and make some music uh, at my desk. And uh, I have a uh, niece and a nephew that were adopted from Ethiopia. So this was uh, brought by my uh, brother-in-law and sister-in-law uh, from Ethiopia. So that's one of the things in my desk. See, another thing on my desk, I do have a sweet tooth, so I do have a box of uh, Mike and Ike Sours, and that's always good to have with you. There's always good to have something uh, candy in there. Um, Additionally, another thing I have in here is I do have a thing of breath mints. Um, I learned as a pastor, one of the necessary things as a pastor is to always have a breath mint with you. So I do have breath mints, so if I need one, just let me know. I've got some here. And uh, one of the other interesting things on my desk is I have this... This little cross right here. And you look and say, well, why do you have this little cross in your desk? And I have a friend, uh, actually his name is Tom Oliva. He runs the Aspire Mentoring Program at the YMCA. And uh, we did, when I was at Madison House, we did some work together and got to know Tom. And Tom went over to Israel for, for uh, I think he was there for about a month. And uh, he brought this back for me. And he said, Kevin, this is a unique cross. He said, this is made from, from an olive tree. And, uh, you know, this cross from, from Israel is, is, is really symbolic. And so I, I've kept this in my desk because I thought this is really a cool piece. This is really a cool thing. And, um, you know, it makes me think, though, what does a cross actually mean? I mean, I mean, we all have seen crosses. We all, you may have a cross. You may wear a, a necklace as a cross. But what does the cross actually mean? Is this just some piece of wood that I keep in my desk in case I need to start a fire? Or what does this cross actually mean? And uh, honestly, the cross can mean different things for, for different people. I mean, many people think it's a popular piece of jewelry that you can wear. And so you can get these fancy necklaces or earrings or whatever else that have these gold crosses on them. They look really cool and and fancy. Maybe you see some sports players flashing their bling bling with these big crosses on them. Some people would view a cross kind of like a good luck charm. You know, I've got my good luck cross with me. And so I'm going to have a good day because I've got my cross with me. Maybe, Maybe some people would view it as an icon. You know, something that they, 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 they worship, something that they, they put their attention to. And, um, and so the question really becomes, what is the significance of the cross? Chances are you've got a cross maybe in your bedroom. You've got a cross in your house. You've got a cross somewhere. You've seen them. So what is the significance of the cross? So if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Mark chapter 15. If you have a Bible, Mark chapter 15. If you need a Bible, just slip your hand up. We've got a couple ushers in the back. Uh, a couple cowboy fans, so they can uh, bring you a, uh, a Bible. And um, we're going to look into Mark chapter 15. Now, what's interesting is we're, we're, we're almost at the end of our series in Mark. We've been in Mark for, uh, I don't know how long, unless a long time we've been studying the gospel of Mark. And Mark's gospel begins in chapter 1, verse 1. And it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the very first verse of the gospel of Mark. 
And so throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen many people who have identified Jesus as many things. We've heard the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they've identified Jesus as a, as a fake. They've identified Jesus as all sorts of things. Uh, really, the climax that we saw was in, in, in Mark chapter 8, when Peter identified Jesus as the Messiah. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. But here, Mark chapter 15 We'll see a man is going to watch the entire story of the cross play out. He's going to watch Jesus on trial before Pilate. He's going to watch Jesus carry his cross to Golgotha, the place of the school, to be crucified. He's going to watch Jesus get his hands and feet nailed to that cross. He's going to watch Jesus suspended in the air on that cross. He's going to watch people ridicule Jesus And Jesus never returning their hate. And he's going to watch Jesus finally breathing his last breath. And it's this man, near the end of the Gospel of Mark, who confesses who Jesus truly is. He says, Jesus, you truly are the Son of God. So, we're going to look today and we're going to see what the cross means. What it means for you and I and and how it has an impact into our life. And so I'm going to ask you uh, to read along with me. I'm going to read... Um, starting in Mark chapter 15, uh, verse, starting in verse 16. And we're going uh, to read a good portion of scripture here. So you can follow along in your Bible. We also have the words on screen. So Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. And it says, The soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns. And they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided and divided his garment, his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the the inscription of the charge against him read the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself and come down from that cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema shabachni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders heard it, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered, a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood facing him, saw that it was this way he breathed his last, he said, 
truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph and Solomon, Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. That is God's word for us today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. And God, as we think about what we just read, kind of a solemn time, kind of a serious time. God, I pray that you would help us to understand what is the significance about this cross. What impact it should have on our lives. Why it's so important. Why it's something that we still celebrate over 2,000 years later. God, I pray that you would help us to put the distractions out of our minds. That, God, you would speak to us. God, we want us, uh, we want to be drawn to you. We want to grow deeper in love with you. We want to have a greater appreciation of the cross. So, God, I pray that you would speak to us today. I pray, God, that we would understand this isn't just the pastor's opinion, but, God, this is your word being taught. God, give us understanding. God, we plead for your presence with us now. In your name, amen. So this morning, we're going to look at the cross, and we're going to understand what is significant about the cross and what the cross does. So the first thing, first thing I want to point out is I want to point out that the cross compels. The cross compels. If you look in verse 21, and it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. This guy, Simon, was from the region of, of Cyrene. Cyrene is in North Africa. If you think about Benghazi, we've heard about Benghazi with a cer- certain uh, s- somebody in the government. Uh, this is close to where Benghazi is. This is where Simon had come from. And, and Simon had come to Jerusalem like, like many faithful Jews. He was a Jew living in Cyrene, but he had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. This is what good Jews did. They came and they, they pilgrimed to Jerusalem to celebrate this, this Passover. And his lodgings were actually outside of the city because you've got to imagine during this feast, there were uh, probably a million people in the area. And so there wasn't enough lodging inside the city. So he's staying outside of the city at night and he's coming in to the city to participate in the festivities and, and the things that are happening. And he's coming in and he has no idea about the strange event that he sees happening before him. As he walks into the city, he sees, he sees a throb of people surrounding this Jesus. He sees this man carrying a cross, burdened by the weight of the cross, with his back already cut open and bleeding, and his face disfigured. He sees this man carrying a cross, and the throbs of people all around him. And he begins to wonder, hey, what's, what's happening here? What's going on? Now, according to Roman rule, This area was controlled by Romans at the time. According to Roman rule, any man could be pulled into the service of a Roman soldier at any time. No matter who they were, no matter what they were doing, if a Roman soldier wanted you to do something, he could say, hey, you, come, do this for me. So verse 21 says that Simon is compelled to carry the cross for Jesus. If you've got to just just picture the idea of, of, of Simon here. I mean, Simon's come to come and worship God. He's come to celebrate Passover. He doesn't know what's happening before him. He's not really concerned with what's happening. He's going about his business. He's going about his day. 
And all of a sudden, he is compelled to pick up the cross for this man who's about to be put to death and to carry that cross for him. You can understand his attitude was that of unwilling involvement. He had other things going on. He was being about the business that he set out to be. He had no concern for Jesus. He had no concern for this cross. He had no interest, no desire to do this. See, I wonder, how many of you have a story like that? How many of you have a story where you've got your plans? You know where you're going. You know what you're doing. You've got your, your, your plans all laid out until the cross breaks in. Until God breaks in and says, nah, son, nah. I got something different for you. I want you to follow me. This is kind of what's happening with Simon. Simon's going about his business. He had his plans laid out. He knew what was going to happen. And all of a sudden, the cross breaks in. And he's compelled to pick up that cross for Jesus. You know, this church, it's almost a story of the exact same thing. See, Samantha and I, we had, uh, we had a five-year plan figured out in our lives. We had all these things and we said, man, here's what the next five years of our lives looks like. We're going to do this and then we're going to do that and we're going to do this and then God's going to open up the store and, and this is what our lives are going to look like. And we had this, this, this fancy plan laid out and church planning was never on our radar. Church planning was never on our radar, never crossed my mind. In fact, I didn't think I had the skills to plan a church. I thought, no way, that's for somebody else. But one day, a dude by the name of Nick Natale calls me. He says, hey, Kevin, can we get coffee? And, and he says, Kevin, Kevin, he says, Kevin, you've got a heart for the downtown area. You've got experience in ministering downtown at Madison House. Kevin, God's given you a passion for this church. Kevin, Kevin, I think you're supposed to plant a church in downtown Yakima. And I said, no way. No, this isn't a part of my plan. I've got my plans laid out. I know where I want to be in five years. I have other things in front of me. No, this isn't what I want to do. And I remember coming home and, and I told Samantha, hey, I had the chance to meet with Nick today. And she says, great, what did he say? And, and I said, well, he said, would you plant a church with me? And, and, and she said, well, what'd you say? And I said, well, no. And she starts crying and she said, why would you say that? I said, because it's not of our plan. But this is what happens. The cross breaks in and you become compelled to follow Christ. You be compelled to pick up that cross and follow what God has for you. Because when the cross compels you, there's no saying no. There's no saying no when the cross compels you. You can try and delay it as long as you can. And life continues to get miserable until you finally are compelled to pick up that cross and follow Christ. Sometimes it's hard, especially when there's pain and suffering involved in carrying that cross. I'm sure for Simon, carrying that cross was not all roses and chocolate and, and happy days. I'm sure there was a weight. I'm sure there was blood on that cross from Jesus' back. I'm sure that was something that was not comfortable. But what's cool is Mark 15 is not the end of the story for Simon. See, what we see that began as an interruption to his plans, what began as an interruption to his, his, his day, what began and, and, and diverted him from what he wanted to do is not the end because what began as interruption led to Simon's salvation. God brought salvation to Simon's interruption. 
See, Mark carefully reported in verse 21 that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you say, well, what, who cares that he's the father of these two guys? The only reason that Mark would have included that little note that Simon was the father of these two boys is if these two boys were familiar to the people that Mark was writing this book to. See, in the book of Romans, there's a, uh, there's a letter written by the apostle Paul to the church in Rome. And during Paul's closing of the letter, he instructs the church to greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord. See, evidently, this is the same Rufus. Evidently, whatever happened to Simon that day led to his family being transformed, led to his boys becoming followers of Christ, led to them having salvation. So this tells me something about Simon. He was a bystander. He was a bystander on the day that he was compelled to pick up that cross. But soon he became a willing participant. He was forced to bear the cross only to find that it was the bearer of his own sins. He had come for his own purposes, but God reached out and changed his plans and changed his life. And today, the cross still does the same thing. The cross still compels We're busy doing our own things. We have our own plans. We have our own agenda. But God, when we are confronted with the cross of Jesus Christ, God calls us to become willing participants in his cross. And our lives are never the same. So what is is the cross compelling you today? What is the cross? What is God compelling you to do today? Because I tell you, the longer we delay in, in being obedient to the cross, the more difficulty we're going to have. So the cross compels us. Second thing we understand about the cross is the cross is going to bring ridicule. The cross brings ridicule. We see this several times throughout this passage. First in verse 24. And it says, and they, this is the soldiers, they crucified him and they divided his garments among, garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. I mean, can you imagine these soldiers? Can you imagine how heartless they've got to be to be shooting craps underneath the foot of the cross while Jesus is hanging and dying on that cross? Thinking that somehow this man on this cross, by by taking some of his clothes, they might be able to sell them for a profit and make some money off of this man who is dying on the cross. These guys had no idea what was happening right above their heads. But there was more ridicule than just those soldiers. It was customary in that time that when you were being crucified, they would write your name on, on on a plaque. And then they would write the sins for which you were being uh, killed, for which you were being, um, the nature of the crimes for which you're being punished. And they would write that on a tablet or on a plaque, and then they would nail that on top of the cross. And verse 26 says, And the inscription of the charge against Jesus read, The King of the Jews. Now Mark doesn't tell us who wrote this inscription, but John's gospel says it was Pilate. Pilate probably was doing this as a way to mock the Jews because the Jews didn't think that Jesus really was the king. But he marks on there, king of the Jews is a way to mock the Jews and is a way to mock Jesus. But there's even more ridicule. 
Verse 29 says, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Notice these different groups of people who are mocking Jesus. You've got people who are just passing by. You've got the chief priests and the scribes. You've even got those two criminals who are being crucified on either side of him. It's almost like the entire world is against him. It's almost like the entire world is there to insult and to mock him. I mean, I mean, I can, I can understand the chief priests and the scribes. I can understand them mocking Jesus. They've hated Jesus from the very beginning. They've been jealous of Jesus from the very beginning. I can get them mocking Jesus. But, but some of these who taunted Jesus, they were just passing by. They had no stake in the, in the days uh, proceedings that have happened. They had no stake in the trial. They had no stake in Jesus himself. They were merely passing by. See, I'd imagine that some of these people who were passing by were probably part of the same people who when Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a colt just a week earlier, I imagine some of those people were the same people who were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, there's this pattern that we follow where, where we follow what popular culture does. We follow what the people around us do. And you can imagine these passerbys, everybody else is doing it. Shouldn't we jump in and do the same thing? It's what everybody, everybody's doing. I'm going to just follow suit because that's what everybody's doing. And if anybody was able to empathize with Jesus and his sufferings, certainly, certainly those criminals on either side of him, those thieves, man, you think that they would have a little bit of sympathy towards Jesus because they're enduring the same thing as him. They're hung on a cross beside him. But it says they also taunted him. See, there's almost something supernatural. There's almost something venomous. There's almost this this hatred that people felt for Jesus on this day. Almost like Jesus, or almost like Satan, has filled the heart of everyone and anyone who would heap scorn, who would heap insults, who would beat down the Son of God even further. See, when it comes to the cross, there's no true agnosticism. Agnosticism is this idea where you're kind of indifferent. You know, religion, God, you're kind of indifferent to it. You know, you're not for it. You're not against it. It's there. Do your thing. I'm not going to tell you one way or the other. But when it comes to the cross, there is no agnosticism. There's no true apathy towards the cross. The cross does not allow that option. Yeah, for a time, you might be able to shoot craps underneath the cross, but the cross compels you to make a decision. Either you will love Christ or you will hate him. Either you will accept Christ or you will reject him. And these folks who are ridiculing Jesus, they've made their decision. They've made their decision because the cross compels you to make a decision. Let me just say, Restoration Church... If you are living a gospel-centered life, if you are living a cross-shaped life, if your life is shaped by what Jesus did for you on the cross, 
People around you are going to be compelled to make a decision about your Jesus. They will either love the Jesus you serve or they will hate him. And what's going to happen is their ridicule will be pointed to you if they rejected him. Because you are a representative of the cross. It should not surprise us when we have ridicule, when we have opposition to our faith. In fact, I'd be more surprised and I'd be more concerned if he said, I've never had any rejection because of Christ. I've never been told I was a foolish for, for believing in the cross. Because if you're not experiencing it, chances are your life is not actually shaped by the cross. Those who reject Christ, their ridicule and their mockery will be heaped upon us. Because we are representatives of the cross. Because the cross does bring ridicule. Third thing that we learn about the cross is the cross brings God's presence. The cross brings God's presence. It says in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour, that would have been about noon. And, and, and the ninth hour would have been about 3 p.m. This is the middle of the day. It should have been light out. It should have been plenty light out. But the Bible says that darkness had come over the land. Why? Why, why was there darkness over the land? Well, I can't tell you exa- exactly, but I can tell you that we know that Jesus became sin. That he became sin for us. And, and, and God, the Heavenly Father, he turned away. And when his Father withdrew his presence, the world became dark. And then verse 34, possibly the most loneliest words throughout the entire Bible. It says, then at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachni, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We talked about these verses, these words uh, around Easter time this past year. He cries out and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken means to be abandoned. It means to be deserted. It means Jesus at this point feels all alone. God has turned his face from shining upon Jesus. And Jesus feels and says, God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned my, your back on me? See, it's at this moment. Jesus has become sin for us. He has taken our sin Upon himself. Every lie. Every bad thought. Every time we we stole something. Every time we looked lustfully. Every time we gossiped. Every time we coveted. He took every one of those things upon himself. And God. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God is too pure to look at sin. So at this point, God turns his back on Jesus. He withdraws his presence. He forsakes Jesus, who became sin for us. So the valid question, you're probably sitting in your seat saying this. You're saying, okay, pastor, God took his presence away from Jesus on the cross. So how does the cross mean that uh, we have God's presence? How does the cross bring God's presence? Hebrews chapter 10, we talked about this around Easter time. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14 says, and, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The author of Hebrews says this. He says, Jesus Christ was offered once and for all. He offered a single sacrifice, only one. It doesn't have to be happened again and again. He offered one sacrifice that covered a multitude of sins, every one of our sins. It means that Jesus was sacrificed once for all of our sins. There would never need to be another sacrifice. And just a few pages down, the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 13, he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. See, you put those two verses together and this is what you have. You have Jesus making a sacrifice once and for all, only one sacrifice. And then a few pages later, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You put these together and Because Jesus made that one sacrifice, we have the promise of his presence with us forever. What this means is that God the Father, he forsook Jesus then. He withdrew his presence from Jesus then, once and for all, so that we might never have to lose his presence again. His presence is promised to us because Jesus took that that, that loneliness for us. Because Jesus was forsaken on the cross once and for all, it means that God will never have to abandon any one of us. He's given us that promise that he will always be with us, that we will never be alone. Now, I I know in my own life, so I'm going to assume this works for all of us. I know that Satan loves to fill my heart with all sorts of lies, telling me that I'm all alone, telling me, that nobody cares, telling me that I've been abandoned by God. But listen, that's a lie. That's not the truth. That's a lie. John 17, 17 tells us that God's word is truth. So listen, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the lie that Satan fills our minds with over and over and over again. Stand on the word of God. Stand on the promise that he gave us, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. Stand on that even when times get hard. Because of the cross, we have the promise of his presence with us forever and always. Last thing we learn about the cross here. We learn that the cross convinces the cross convinces. It says in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. He says with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The Apostle John wrote in his gospel account that Jesus cried out with a loud voice, It is finished! And then he breathed his last. And at that moment, the, 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 the curtain of the temple, 
This is what separated the, the, the holy of holy from, from the people. The, the most holiest place where God's presence resided. This, this curtain separated the general population from this holy place where God's presence resided. This curtain was probably seven feet high, probably uh, 30 feet long, and it was like nine to 12 inches wide. This was a big uh, curtain. And at that moment, at the very moment when Jesus breathed his last, the temple curtain was, was torn from top to bottom. See, there was a man. There was a man who saw all of these things on that day. He saw the trial before Pilate. He saw Jesus being beaten by the guards. He saw Jesus carrying his cross. He saw those people coming and ridiculing Jesus. He saw Jesus breathed his last. And he saw all of this, and he came to an astounding conclusion. He was not one of the priests. He wasn't one of the scribes. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't even Jewish. He was a Roman centurion who'd be in charge of the whole crucifixion ordeal. He would have been present at the trial. He would have been present as Jesus was carrying the cross. He would have uh, been involved in nailing Jesus' hands and feet to that cross. He would have involved in, in, in those clothes being divided. And through it all, this man is watching this, this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And now he comes to this amazing conclusion and is convinced, truly, this man was the son of God. The cross convinces us of who Jesus is because he gave his life for us. He loved us enough. He loved us so much that he was willing to give his life as a criminal to take our sin, to take our penalty upon him so that you and I could be made right with God. The cross convinces of this. I mean, what what, what made him say this? What made the centurion come to that, uh, that moment that he was convinced of who Jesus was? Maybe, it was? maybe it was the sun being turned back. Maybe it was the darkness over the land. Maybe, maybe it was the tearing of the veil uh, of that curtain in half. And maybe he said, maybe that's it. Maybe it was the love and forgiveness reflected in the bruised and bloody face of Jesus. I don't know exactly what it is that convinced him. But I do know that at that moment, what he saw on the cross, what he saw of Jesus giving his life on the cross, convinced him of who Jesus truly was. That he was the son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for you and I. As we close, one of the things that that left me wondering in this passage is why, why was that veil torn in two? Why in that temple was that curtain torn into two? What's the significance of that? See, that veil being torn in two was was a God's dramatic way of saying for all time and for all people that God's heart is wide open. No longer is there this curtain. No longer is there this wall that prevents us from from having access to God, from, from experiencing God's heart. It's been ripped apart. His heart is wide open. We have access to him. See, God's not going to plan revenge. I mean, all those people who gathered around the cross in, in hatred and malice against Jesus, every one of them are welcomed back. I mean, this is what the curtain being torn in two means. 
It means the penalty has been paid for the hateful. The penalty has been paid for the cruel, for the ignorant, for the selfish, for the empty-headed thrill-seekers. The punishment has been made for the adulterers. The punishment has been made for the haters, for all of those who hated. The way is wide open, and God is waiting to restore the hopeless, to restore the helpless, to restore the, the fearful. His heart is wide open. I remember... A couple years ago, I read a passage, I read a sermon by the great D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was an American evangelist from the 19th century, planted Moody Bible Church in Chicago, uh, Moody Bible Institute, named after him. And I read this message, and it was uh, his imaginative description of what would happen after Jesus rose from the grave. This is just his imagination of trying to understand what happened after the Jesus rose from the grave. And Moody says that Jesus would have gathered his disciples in Jerusalem. And he would have said to the men, he would have said, men, I want you to go out. And I want you to find those priests who mocked me, who, who hurled all their taunts at me, who taunted me and said, he saved others himself. He cannot save. He says, I want you to go and I want you to find them. And I want you to explain to them that if I save myself, then they would have been doomed men. They would have been doomed to suffer for eternity. But tell them that the way is wide open. Tell them that God's heart is wide open. And the way to God's heart is there. The book of Acts says that as Peter and the other disciples, they preached in Jerusalem, that a great number of priests and scribes became obedient to the faith. Moody said that Jesus would have called his disciples and would have said, go and find those soldiers. Go find those soldiers who casted lots for my garments, for my, for my robe, and tell them there is a great, far greater treasure awaiting them if they will come to me. There's something better than this robe. There's something better than money if they will just come to me. They won't have a robe, but they will rather have a spotless heart. All their guilt can be washed away. All their callous cruelty can be forgiven if they come to me. Jesus would have called his disciples together and said, find that centurion who thrust his spear into my side and tell him that there is a closer way to the heart of God if he will just come just as a sinner needing forgiveness. See, in this beautiful scene of the rending, of the ripping apart of that veil, the moan of Jesus' death, God is saying the way to him is open to us, despite the attitudes that we frequently have towards him. The veil has been broken, and you and I, we have access to the heart of God. We have access to God himself. That's what the cross does. That's what the cross does. And because of the cross, we have the opportunity today to, to call out to him, to humble ourselves, say, God, God, I know you're there. God, I know you're there. So I want to just encourage us as we get ready now to respond to God's word. I want you to take this opportunity now to approach God to approach his throne and say, God, I am so thankful for the cross. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to, to come before you, to be able to, to, to have your presence in my life, to be able to have your, your, your presence in my heart, 
to be able to feel that you are near. And I'm not sure how the cross affects you today. Maybe, maybe you are compelled because you know the cross is calling you to do something. Maybe the cross is calling you to take a step of faith. Maybe the cross is calling you to commit to the local body of Christ, to commit to be a part of the church. You know how the church moves forward? On our knees, together. It seems at some points that we're, we're a little bit um, disunified. We're all doing our own thing. You know, maybe the cross is compelling you. Hey, lean in. Let's rally together on our knees together for God to do something in our midst right here. Maybe the cross is, is, is helping you understand the ridicule you face in your life. That in order for you to stand for the gospel, to stand for what Jesus has done for you, you might experience rejection. You might experience ridicule. And it's nothing compared to what Jesus experienced. Maybe for you today, you just need God's presence. You need to be reminded that because God forsook Jesus then, he'll never forsake you now. And now you have the access to go to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And maybe today, maybe the cross has convinced you that you need to come into a relationship with him as your savior. You need to surrender your life and say, God, I'm yours. God, I'm sorry for my sin. I come before you broken and, and I receive you as my savior. But today, every one of us, as we respond to God's word, I encourage you, approach him, cry out to him, worship him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the little voices in the background that are a reminder just of, of your goodness. That God, we're to come before you with a childlike heart. It means we set our pride aside. We believe that you are bigger than we can ever imagine. That you are greater than we can ever imagine. That we aren't hindered by our adult thinking. That we believe that you are good. That you are awesome. That you are powerful. God, I pray that we would understand what the cross represents. I pray that we would understand that because of the cross, we have access to you. A veil has been torn. Today, I pray for every one of us in here that we would cry out to you, that we would approach you boldly, that we would experience your presence right here and right now. I pray, God, that we would have the opportunity to pray right now and, and just cry out from the depths of our hearts. God, you know what each one of us are going through. God, I pray that you would just remind every one of us that we aren't alone that you are right here, that you hear our cries, you hear our heart. God, if there's anybody who just says, Pastor, I'm overwhelmed, I need somebody to pray with me, God, I pray that they'd be coming forward during these couple of response songs and say, Pastor, would you just pray for me? Would you, can, can, can I tell you what's going on? And Pastor, would you just pray for me, for my family? God, I pray that as we have the opportunity to, to sing these songs of worship, that, God, they wouldn't just be words that we sing to, but, God, they'd be from the depths of our heart of crying out for how good and how great you are because the veil has been torn and we have access to your heart. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the cross means. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen.